Welcome to the Barbarians at the Gate podcast, a semi-serious deep dive into Chinese history and Chinese culture broadcast from Beijing. Today we have a special edition, and while I'm not sure you can have a special edition when it's only your second episode, here we go anyway. My co-host James Palmer is back in England, and since the reason for his hiatus is to get married to his wonderful fiance Christina, I guess we have to give him a pass. James will be back in two weeks when we resume our series on conquest dynasties and northern barbarians in Chinese history. But today, I'm pleased to welcome two very special guests. First off, filling in for James as co-host, is former Beijing resident and longtime stalwart of the Chinese literary translation scene, now a doctoral student with Victor Mayer at the University of Pennsylvania, Brendan O'Kane. Welcome back to Beijing, Brendan. Thanks for having me. And joining Brendan and I today, on loan from the Seneca podcast, is David Moser, Academic Director of the Study Abroad Program, CET, at Beijing Capital Normal University, and the author of the new book, A Billion Voices, China's Search for a Common Language. Welcome, David. Thanks. I'm happy to be here in this special episode, and I'll try to make it even more special. We're really fortunate to have two scholars here who have really looked at the Chinese language. And I think it's helpful because for a lot of us who have just studied Chinese, one of the things that I think a lot of people misunderstand is something I've previously misunderstood myself, is this difference between the Chinese language and Chinese script. And David, one of the things your book really focuses on is that these are really two different things. What's the source of this misunderstanding? And as a linguist, as someone who studied linguistics, what is the difference then between when we say Chinese as a language and Chinese as a script? Yeah, well, it's kind of an understandable mistake because uh, the Chinese themselves for, for centuries have, have sort of thought of and treated the Chinese script as, as, some, as sort of tantamount to, you know, or, or sort of equated to the language itself. Most foreigners, when you say, you know, it, the Chinese language or the difficulty of the Chinese language, they're thinking of these characters is what they're really thinking of because they have no idea what, you know, how, how the script works and how the difference between characters and script arises. And in fact, you know, Chinese does not have to be written with this script. It could be written with any number of alphabets or any, anything. Yeah, I mean, you can see it written in Arabic. You can see it written in Cyrillic, still is, with Dongan. Um, can write it with Julian. You can write it with IPA. You name it. It's, it's been written in a whole massive way. I think a lot of people, when they think, you know, of language reform or they think of the difficulty of Chinese, you know, they're thinking about the script rather than the actual language itself. And this sort of causes a lot of problems because, because people think that, first of all, it, it's, it sort of presupposes that the Chinese language and the Chinese Chinese script, this complicated Chinese, what we call Hanzi characters, are, are sort of inseparable. That there's no way you could you could have a Chinese language without these characters, and that has caused a host of problems. Not just uh, we can get into this later on, but not only just for me as someone who, uh, as you did, Jeremiah, oversee a program that tries to teach this language to hapless American students. Right, it, that you get into problems when. Uh, the learning of the script, which is very time-consuming and, and uh, very arduous, can actually interfere with mastery of the language, which is the, you know, the spoken language. Those two are you know, really at loggerheads. We all have experience in that, and maybe you could all tell horror stories of being trapped in the script and not being able to get out. So um, I'll say I, I don't think characters are hard, necessarily. I think they're time-consuming, and I think there's a difference. The way they're taught, to foreign learners of Chinese and also to Chinese learners of Chinese is abysmal. It's uh, really inefficient. It doesn't give people any of the tools that might save them time and effort. 
But when you get down to it, you know, once you've learned your first 200 characters or so, the next thousand come very easily. Can I just say something just to the listeners? Uh, Jeremiah, I mean, it's great to have Brendan on, but it's a very poor choice because it's like having a podcast to talk about the difficulty of playing the cello and invite Yo-Yo Ma. Because he's going to say, what? I don't know. It's only four strings. I never said anything very difficult about it. The problem is Brendan is a very, very, you know, linguistically astute. And he's, a, he's you know, sort of a, linguist, a linguistic uh, prodigy, you know. So what he said is just true. But to say that it's not hard, most of us, to most of us mortals, it's not just only time consuming. It's very actually difficult to remember all those scripts. So with that caveat, please continue, Brendan. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I draw the distinction because, you know, it, Abstract mathematics is hard, right? Doing something, there are things that are conceptually difficult. Uh, there are things that require a lot of brain power. And then there are characters. And characters are just, you know, it, it's rote repetition. Like, how many times have you asked, uh, have you had people ask you, you know, how do you, you know, what's the secret to learning to write Chinese? Mm-hmm. The only way to learn the script is to write it out, repeat it again and again, write a character 25 times and it's yours. That's time consuming, but I don't think it's hard. Although over the years, even here in China, this notion that somehow Chinese characters are an impediment to literacy or an impediment to even modernity has come up again and again, and not just from the outside looking in, but also among Chinese reformers, modernizers, particularly over the last hundred years or so, although there were earlier attempts as well. And I, I think looking at that history of script reform, if we're going to separate that out from language reform, really tells us a lot about how Chinese culture and how people in China relate Chinese culture to either the preservation of these scripts or the way some people have connected modernity with abolition or at least the the changing of script over the years. The the, the first time this really came up in, in earnest was, of course, the May 4th movement, when you had some very astute thinkers whose whose intelligence was made even more acute and sharpened by the existential crisis that China found itself in the midst of. It was about to, to be overrun by foreigners, and then the culture was, from their standpoint, was about to you know be annihilated, overrun. And one of the problems that they saw was, of course, this problem of literacy. People who, your listeners who know who Lu Xun is, the, the most famous May 4th writer, is, is quoted as, as saying, maybe, perhaps on his deathbed, it might be apocryphal, but he was quoted as saying, if we don't eliminate Chinese characters, China is doomed. And that's how strongly he felt about it. But most of his May 4th compatriots were advocating eventual or immediate uh, abolition of the characters in place uh, to be replaced by some kind of phonetic system, whether it be an alphabet or some kind of symbols. So the, the, the point is that it's, it's not just a matter of it's not a matter of opinion, I don't, I don't think. The people, the, the, the May 4th movement and the, the early Chinese intellectuals after the fall of the Qing really saw this as a very, very obvious detriment or impediment to literacy, but also as, a, as an issue of nation building, as you said. It does seem like over the last hundred years, and particularly when we get into the period post-1949, that this notion of trying to bind the language with the nation and bind the nation together by either reforming the way the spoken language is taught and particularly the implementation, which, which of course dates back pre-1949 to the creation of some kind of national dialect or national language, whether it's Guoyu as in now as in Taiwan and then during the Republican period or Putonghua today. But even that, I mean, leaving aside the script for a moment, and certainly there was that moment where we went from the traditional or complicated script to the simplified script, but leaving that aside for the moment, this idea that the language that everyone assumes today, or most people call Chinese, the spoken language, is itself product of the 20th century. I 
try to to be very um, conscientious about distinguishing between Mandarin and Chinese. There is no such thing as the Chinese language. It's a language family. And, you know, you will occasionally have people say, you know, no, they're dialects, or, you know, well, how do you even tell the difference between a dialect and a language? The fact of the matter is that, you know, no responsible linguist looking at this honestly would say that Shanghainese is a dialect of Mandarin or Cantonese. And in fact, Mandarin is weird as a Chinese language. It developed along these weird lines. It doesn't do a lot of things that you know, more normal languages like Cantonese or Shanghainese do. It's thrown a lot of complexity overboard. Um, it has a more simple tone system. It's, you know, grammatically it's simpler. So the notion that Mandarin is real Chinese and Cantonese is, you know, like dirty Southern Chinese for dirty Southerners is very common here, but it completely ignores the historical development of the law. I thought maybe, David, since again, a large part of your book is devoted to the subject of reform, maybe you could walk us through a little bit of the process by which, first of all, uh, the script was reformed, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit about how did we come, how did we come to this point where Putonghua was made the national language, and, and what is going on today to help reinforce uh, this language-slash-nation-building project. You know, after the fall of the of the Qing, Republican government were, were looking at this agenda of creating some, you know, out of the ashes to create some kind of unity. And one of the things they had in mind, it's a very natural assumption, is they'd looked at the, this this notion of, of, of what nations constituted in Europe and overseas. And there was this notion of one one nation, one people, one language. You know, this seemed to be a, a, an essential part of of what it means to be a nation, right? So, so a very obvious thing for them was to somehow unify the language. The problem was that China had already gone for, for, for many, many centuries with a kind of illusion of linguistic unity because everyone was looking at the same Chinese characters and reading the same texts. But listeners who know something about classical Chinese, the, 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 the language of literature and the language of, of, of books was this artificial classical language where, that was used for the literati. But meanwhile, the ordinary people spoke their, their many hundreds, if not thousands, of local dialects. So you can you can forgive these reformers, these language reformers, at, uh, you know, uh, when they started in 1913 to try to re, to try to unify the language. They were suddenly c confronted with this with this dazzling variety of different kinds of, of speech. Some of which were just clearly just different accents, you know, that they were used to. Others, which were, as Brendan said, you know, as different as as uh, as Beijing dialect from from Shanghai dialect, which are incomprehensible to each other, right? So you can forgive them because this was a horribly complicated, thorny linguistic task that they really did not have the tools to deal with. No one really quite under even understood what with the Chinese, you know, dialects, the toplects, whatever you want to call them, and their relationship to, to the Mandarin dialects. No one had this figured out. Uh, you know, keep in mind, you know, modern linguistics as a science was a rather new. It came to with the um, influx of foreign ideas, you know, democracy and science, and, um, and encapsulated in science would have been the science of linguistics, which was a new thing, right? What they were confronted with was this was this mind-numbing complexity that they had to somehow unify. And they knew they had to do it, but they didn't have the tools. And partly this is also a function of the way that, you know, for a couple millennia, characters have been the tail that wags the dog, where you have, throughout the Qing dynasty, you have, you know, incredibly brilliant and sophisticated um, philologists or, or proto-linguists who are really are starting finally to think about language or think about characters and think about sound changes represented in those characters. And yet, as you say, at the start of the 20th century, nobody's really paid that much attention to speech, to spoken languages. You know, you compare the situation in Europe, people have already been working on the, the 
family tree of Indo-European languages for ages. And in China, that's, I mean, it's a 20th century effort, almost exclusively, and it's still so far behind what we have in, in Western Europe or for Indo-European languages. Yeah, uh, that's, that's Brendan's right, and, and something that I was hoping to sort of be clear in my book, which I don't know if I emphasized enough, was, was precisely that problem. China had gone through a long, long tradition where they, they did not even uh, value or even recognize uh, you know the, the the importance of speech as the primary aspect of language use. They were very interested in in creating this beautiful literary language. Uh, it, throughout all of Chinese history, there had never been a, a any, an attempt to come up with a written language or much less a vernacular uh, common language that was based upon the way people actually spoke. And so you had people, these language reformers, many of whom, when when we when confronted with the task of coming up with a a national language, would basically were sort of felt that this was anathema. They said. Oh, you can't just come up with a national language that merely reflects the way people actually speak. These rubes and and right. and country bumpkins. You know, we we have to have the national language that's elegant, that sort of mimics the the, the beautiful speech that we would see in, in, for example, Dream of the Red Chamber or something like that, right? So one of the, and not only that, but but even these vernacular forms of fi, you know of, of fiction and so and so on and so forth. China had never really developed a something that would be based on a spoken tradition. It took them a long time to even get on board with the notion that we have to create a national language that's based upon an actual variety of speech which is spoken. And that's something that people, when you think, you know, what are we learning when we learn French? Well, we're, we're just learning the way the French people speak in Paris. What else were you learning, right? Chinese never had this notion that we should find a, a standard and let's just go with that. And so the, the initial attempts was this hodgepodge of aspects of Mandarin dialects with some aspects of Southern dialects and so forth. They still couldn't get the idea that, no, you have to start with language as she is spoke. And that was one of the biggest problems of, of Chinese culture, of getting their language, you know, getting the written language and the spoken language unified based upon a certain real variety of speech that human beings spoke. Yeah, there's the wonderful anecdote, which I think you do include in your book, about Zhao Yanren. So Zhao Yanren, one of these amazing figures that that generation produced that current generations don't, but that's a whole other polymath, composer, mathematician, um, one of the first really serious dialectologists of Chinese, also the Chinese translator of Lewis Carroll, which you want to talk about characters. He was responsible for recording the, the gramophone records, which were used to promulgate the pronunciation of the new national language. And this is the one that was bizarre, you know, Frankenstein of a language that nobody ever spoke. But for a time, when he was recording these things, he was fond of saying he was the world's only speaker of Mandarin. <laughs> Not of Mandarin, but I mean, he was the world's only speaker of this hybrid thing that was supposed to of of, of Guoyu. Right? He was. I mean, that was one of the big problems. He recorded these phonograph records that were supposed to be the the, way, the thing that teachers would use to teach students, and they realized that who's going to teach this? Nobody could speak it. And he had actually gone, he was a linguist and had gone to a great effort to learn to pronounce these things right. And he's, and, he's, and indeed, he said, for many years, I was the only one who could speak this so-called national language. It was absurd. But that shows how, how little they actually understood the problem that they were dealing with. And it does seem, too, that even after 1949, even when Putonghua has been embedded as this new national language, what exactly that means seems to be a point of debate. You mentioned in your book, too, 
that is this a language that we're going to use as a means of communicating since we all speak different languages? Or is this going to be a language that we're going to get everybody on board and speaking as their first language? And this tension between those two very radically different approaches to language reform. Even today, we see some of this controversy over broadcasting in regional languages, Cantonese, Shanghainese. And one of the things that amuses me is when I, I like to watch historical dramas on TV, um, not even getting into the whole, the emperors are all speaking Putonghua when they really should be speaking Manchu for a moment. That may just be me. But it is a little odd to see figures with notorious accents like Mao Zedong or Deng Xiaoping speaking with these broadcast Putonghua standard accents. And it seems, I don't know if many, I don't know if many people of the younger generation realize just kind of, how weird that is. I would say, sir, for brief analogy, we think of Shakespearean plays as being properly performed in this sort of inbred, received pronunciation, you know, no-jaw aristocrat accent. And in point of fact, you know, that's nothing like Shakespeare's pronunciation. So, you know, it's not only Chinese that does this. But yeah, when we have recordings of Chairman Mao and his jacked-up Mandarin, it is sort of funny to hear him sounding like a CCTV broadcaster. Well, I mean, that, that highlights the, the sort of contradiction you're talking about, Jeremiah, because the, the, the state administration of radio, film, and television, right, passed these, passed these ordinances uh, in, the, in the 90s. And at, at one point, one of them was, in fact, that the, the national leaders in these uh, biopics that they were doing, you know, the, the Long March and all this stuff, and the actors who would play Chairman Mao and so forth had to speak Putonghua had to speak standard Chinese, Mandarin, right? The problem is <laughs> that the, the standard before this, this passage was that, was that Chairman Mao, Deng Xiaoping, whoever could speak in a form, of, uh, basically in their local dialects that they would have spoken, uh, albeit in a sort of a, uh, just a heavily accented standard Chinese form so that the, the listeners could, the, the, the audiences could understand what they were saying, but Deng Xiaoping is clearly speaking in Sichuan accent. After the passage of this law, they had to put out a few films in which, for example, this actor, uh, Tang Guoqiang, right, played Chairman Mao, speaking with very standard Putonghua, which was, which for anyone who knows anything about Chairman Mao is a ridiculous anachronism, right? Since then, they have amended this law a little bit and have allowed certain exceptions for, for plays, for certain things, for, for historical purposes. And the, uh, you may remember the most recent series uh, of his life um, allowed the actor who played Deng to speak with an out-and-out Sichuan accent. I mean, it was very heavy accent. It's very basic dialect. So this shows how there's the government themselves are very conflicted of how to do this. How, you know, dialects are a fact of life. You can't just ignore them. But they have when you have the when the media has both a sort of educative and normative function at the same time it has to entertain. You know, realistically, they've they've they're. They've got a contradiction there. You can't do both. Either the media educates and, and makes it is a linguistic model, or it's just the it just lets actors speak the way people really speak. Which is it? And the Chinese government hasn't really made that decision yet. And I think too, the way language is perceived in Shanghai or particularly in some place like Guangdong, where it's part of the regional identity, you really see that not just a, a linguistic tension, but that tension from the center to the local playing out along lines of enforcement or non-enforcement of the language policy. In the South, kids who are very um, consciously going to some lengths to speak Cantonese, to rap in Cantonese. You have people in Sichuan who are rapping in Chengduhua. I think there is this sort of generational difference as well with, you know, the older generation 
feeling inferior because they can't speak standard Mandarin. And the younger generation, which has grown up speaking standard Mandarin because of TV and the radio, asserting its prerogative to have a local identity by speaking in the local language as well. The the sort of tendency now, like uh, that I talk about in my book, is for some of the dialects that for 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 which the different the di- the distance from from Mandarin from the northern dialects is slight, so that it constitutes a kind of an accent rather than a different language itself. Those are really in the risk of dying out because the media is a great leveler. Just as in the United States, you know, I grew up watching TV and that's how I learned to talk. So I don't talk anything like the region where I grew up in. And the same is true of China. So those so-called dialects are atrophying and dying out. But there are these other dialects that I call prestige dialects. We'll call them what you want. One of them is Cantonese that arguably, you know, is a rival to Mandarin in terms of its cultural importance. You have, you know, the, the, the number of people who speak Cantonese is, is something like 80 million, which is the same number of Italian speakers worldwide. And they've got a claim to a, a real cultural uh, domain here. And so for you to take Cantonese off the radio, off the television, and say, you know, we're gradually going to try to assimilate everyone to speaking Putonghua, you're going to get dialect uprisings, which, which, we, which is what we've seen. Uh, these Cantonese speakers saying, oh, no, you don't. You know, this is not just a linguistic thing. This is our cultural heritage. And we, we don't mind listening to Putonghua and trying to speak it in, in public situations. But do not eradicate this dialect. And you can understand why they feel that way. We've talked a lot about the spoken language, but I think it might be worth talking about the, the script, uh, script as well. And this idea, how did we get to the script today? And maybe looking ahead a little bit, is the Chinese script in some ways a limiting factor or holding back uh, development in some way? This is not, this is not a new argument. As, as, as we mentioned, it's something that's been a part of the Chinese discourse and certainly part of the international discourse on China. But it's come to the fore a little bit lately with several essays that have been written arguing that there is something limiting about Chinese characters. And then a very uh, passionate response by Professor Tom Mullaney of Stanford University, who said that this idea that Chinese characters are somehow somehow holding China back is an example of Orientalism. In your book, you talk about this, and in, you had written on Language Log and also in China File a little bit. Is this a real debate or are we kind of setting up a straw man? This notion that Chinese characters are holding China back, is this something that we need to be worried about? I just like to keep it just at the level of, of ba- very basic scientific level, an ergonomic level, if you know what that means, you know, just a, a very a trade-off of effort to effect. If you, if you look at what we just talked about earlier on that Brenda and I were talking about with the, just the sheer amount of time that it takes for any lear- uh, you know, learner, e- even young ones from, from age zero to, to learn this system, then that's already a, qu- a problem right there. It just, it's, it's just simply an, an inefficiency which is built into the system. No matter how good you are at memorizing, you still have to spend a lot more time memorizing than you would in any other script, right? So that's one problem. It, what, and what that means is that even though China has re- achieved and is very proud of its literacy level, which they claim to be 95%, I'm not sure what you can make of that. The, the, the question is, how long did it take speakers to get to that level of literacy? That's a huge issue that you have to talk about. But you can dispute that if you want. It, but it is indisputable that foreigners trying to learn the language have got a very, very difficult time. Most of us learn after a, a puberty into adulthood. We Our absorptive powers are just not as good as they were when you're kids, and you're not learning the, the spoken at the same time you're le- learning the written. So for foreign learners, it is a huge, almost sometimes disastrous drain on resources, memory, and, and time. 
and and many foreigners who are learn who learn Chinese who who really want to learn to speak it well, you know, very often uh, just give up the, the 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 task at the outset and say it's just not worth it for me to even delve into the the, the written language. I'm just going to learn to speak. So that's that's the short answer to all of that. But but the other answer, the other side of that is that you say, is it a drain on Chinese culture? Is it a drain on anything? It is certainly take makes so, Chinese soft power take a hit. Because if you want to really promote your soft power, you need to have lots of people engaged in the culture. That means reading your novels, watching your movies, uh, you know, engaged in your social media. And the, 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 the fact that this barrier of the characters is, is there is, is something that is just, you can't measure, you can't prove this point I'm trying to make. But it, it, it constitutes a, a, a workload, a front-loaded you know, barrier to, to easy mastery of the language, whether spoken or written, which I think is, does hurt Chinese soft power. It's something that the Confucius Institutes, the Hanbad has to confront daily when they're trying to promote Chinese language learning and culture in, in, throughout the world. I'm actually going to disagree with a lot of that, even though I think we're generally coming from a very similar place. I just sort of think, you know, suck it up, foreigners. Yeah, I, I don't think that, you know, foreigners find it difficult is, is a compelling argument against characters. I think there are much better ones to be made. In terms of soft power, you could say that characters are the ultimate soft power. Look how many people have tattoos on them of, you know, characters that they can't even read. Everybody knows that, you know, even if they don't know thing one about Chinese, they know about Chinese characters. And also, of course, the, the problems with the Confucius Institutes and Hanban go way beyond the script, like the fact that they suck and their teaching materials suck. Uh, ditto soft power, you know, the, the fact that the Chinese government enforces the mediocrity of all films, books, and, and anything else that might be exported probably is more harmful to soft power, I think, than the, the script in which they're written. But the, the question was, are characters holding China back? And, and I think the, the answer may be yes, but it depends on, you know, holding China back from what? And that's one reason why I was kind of asking about this debate. Are we kind of creating a straw man here a little bit? You know, certainly this has been a debate in the last hundred years, even longer. But you're right. I mean, what what's the standard here by which we're measuring holding back or what are we holding China back from? So, uh, I mean, a lot of the time, the it's been phrased as characters holding China back from science and technology or from interacting with foreign cultures or importing foreign ideas. That was um, sort of one of the things that Ted Young brought up in the, the New Yorker blog post that started all of this off. And then I think that it was a point that uh, that, that Dr. Mullaney really seized upon to the exclusion of all other things uh, in, in his response. You know, this idea uh, which he identifies with Orientalism that, you know, the Chinese writing system has doomed China to being technologically and culturally isolated and inferior. So just to summarize, and we'll have links to these on the on the homepage as well, but that Professor Mullaney is arguing that this this notion, this critique of China based on Chinese characters is a throwback to the 19th century and how uh, foreigners or particularly Westerners would use their standards to judge China. This is the idea, one of the ideas behind Orientalism. And so what he's looking at is, is this argument being in some ways a, a rehashing of old tropes and old critiques that should have been put to rest a long time ago. Yeah, it's very hard to make a case that just the characters themselves, you know, have caused you know any problem. Any people are very resourceful. 
Chinese, there's a lot of Chinese people. There are a lot of very dedicated Chinese people. With, if you put time in the system, you put time to become literate, you can do the same kinds of things. Chinese people have made great strides. I love Chinese characters. I mean, people may think we hate them. I, I actually love them. They're, they're amazing, fascinating as a writing system. I certainly believe that culturally they're, they're absolutely amazing. That's one of the reasons I got interested in. But I, think, but I think when you think in terms of teaching, you think in terms of the practical applications, when you think of, in, of pre-World Wide Web days, pre-digital days, incorporating Chinese characters into the geopolitical uh, sort of arena of ideas or, or the geopolitical arena of texts, that, that this was, this was a, a daunting task. I mean, in the old days, you know, even just sending them over telegraph, telegram, wire, there's the old Chinese telegraph code, right? I mean, they were a serious problem. Nowadays, thank God, we have the internet, we have very clever digital devices, we have Pleco, we have these wonderful things that sort of obviate, that sort of eliminate these obstacles, or at least make them much less, much less painful, right? So I don't think that they're, the Chinese characters are a drain in the specific sense that, you know, people simply can't do technology or they can't, you know, in, engage in science and stuff. It's ridiculous. Of course not. But the point is that the, as a as a character system, as a as a as a um, as a language script, they have certain ergonomic problems over alphabetic systems. Alphabetic systems are front loaded, and you just have to learn the the rules, the the, the spelling rules. The, the, the graph to sound rules. That takes a little bit of time, but once you learn them, it's very powerful. You can write anything that you can say. You can write down anything you hear, and it's, they're easy to remember because the process is, is, a, is, a, is a descriptive one. Chinese is totally different. It breaks that loop. It makes it very hard to remember the graph. It makes it very hard to re remember what sound is associated with that graph. And it's just and and if you're trying to just gain you know quick mastery, the characters are an enormous burden. You know, still to this day, and even for Chinese people who are forgetting how to write their own script, you know, there are serious efficiency problems with the script that we have to deal with. I don't think it's I don't think there's any reason to eliminate the characters. The, Technology has eliminated that problem, has obviously solved that problem to a great extent. But we shouldn't be down to the illusion that, oh, the fact that we're using characters easily in cyberspace means that there was never any problem to begin with. That's just blind. It's just, it's not seeing the reality. It's still a problem. My American students trying to learn Chinese. They bump against it every single day. And to pretend that, oh, now we have, we have uh, digitized Chinese characters, it's no problem. That's that's just uh, what's the word? It's just not seeing the forest for the trees or something. Yeah. So again, you're you're sort of coming at this from the perspective of somebody who is trying to teach Chinese uh, to to and non learn it and, and learn it and learn it. You know, and and both of these are sort of games that I've gotten out of a bit. Um, you know, w w I mean, <laughs> well then, well then, shut up. <laughs> yeah. No, but I what I mean is that I'm sort of I, I I'm seeing a different side of it. Um, you know, I, I've gotten into these sort of discussions, and of course, whenever you say anything about Chinese characters as a visibly non-Chinese person, the assumption is always that you are a foreigner whining because characters are hard. Um, again, I don't think characters are that hard, I just think they suck. What they suck for, this is the thing, there are things that characters are very, very, very good for, much better for than a phonetic script. We were talking about the way that characters disguise these differences of spoken language. You can't do that in a phonetic script. A phonetic script immediately exposes the lie of any notion of there being such a thing as a Chinese language. Characters are great for writing in literary Chinese. 
they're great for making reference to a 2,000-year-old corpus of, of texts. They're great for taking notes on what the ancestor spirits think about the king's toothache on the back of a tortoise shell. They're very bad at reflecting spoken language because that's not what they were designed to do. That was never a value. So I wouldn't say that characters are, you know, bad for foreigners. I mean, they may be, they may not be, but that's really not a compelling reason for, you know, a fifth of the world's population to write their language differently. I wouldn't say that characters are bad for bringing in technology or science or ideas, tell that to the people who made your iPhones, or, you know, the, the country that has put astronauts in space on a more regular basis than the U.S. for the past decade, or the Buddhists or the Communist Party of China. I mean, foreign ideas, science, technology, just fine. But characters are bad for Chinese languages. They're very bad for representing spoken languages. They were never designed to do that. And for the past century, they've been put almost exclusively to a use for which they're very poorly suited. True. I would just add that representing spoken language. So basically you're saying, oh, look, Chinese characters are good for all these other things. And, you know, why, why classical Chinese would be worthless without the characters, which is an empty statement because they, they evolved together, right? But you're saying, but yes, I agree, but for the purpose of writing language, of representing sounds, they suck. Well, that's my point. If we want to create, you know, a, a, an efficient system that will enable people to quickly, you know, master foreigners and local people alike to master this language, you need to have something that represents sounds, and that's what it doesn't do very well. No, I totally agree. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I'm I'm spending my days doing trashy 17th century novels. You know, I I'm not going to get away from characters anytime soon. I think characters suck just sort of on principle. The thing that they suck for is not what people say. You know, what they suck for is Chinese, or Chinese as a living family of languages. They're fine for the sort of, you know, necrophiliac rehearsals of, of you know, 2,000-year-old arguments. And you do see people making these, these things that, you know, I can't write Chinese without Chinese characters. And really, the argument is you need written Chinese for purposes of written Chinese. That's, that's exactly right. People who say, uh, and my wife says this, my wife is Chinese, is that, oh, you could never write Chinese with, with pinyin, I wouldn't be able to read it. And I point out to her, you know, well, if I pick up this book and start reading it out loud, would it be total gibberish to you? Well, no, of course not. I could understand it perfectly. That's all pinyin is. And, and you know, so I, I, I sort of I understand what you're saying if you're dealing with this world of texts and everything. For the purposes of, uh, of learning Chinese in the digital age, I think, you know, it's still an issue that we have to deal with. And I would say again, Jeremiah, you have brought Yo-Yo Ma to a discussion of the difficulty of cello. I used to actually say he, I played Salieri to his Mozart when I was on the same faculty as Brendan. I would just sit there and watch his, you know, brilliance while I slowly plotted his demise. Looking ahead a little bit, you know, where is this Where is this debate going? Where is the future here? Taking a look at Chinese characters, there's an idea that the digital age has helped because so many people now use them for typing, although this is causing a situation where many of us who've learned Chinese, and in fact, many people in China, particularly the younger generations, sometimes when they are physically forced to write a character, can be found cheating and looking it up on their phones. I, there's these restaurants where you have to write out your orders sometimes. I see people kind of looking at their phones and checking out a particular character. So when we're thinking about about the script where are we going David and you know where are we going with the script where's what's the future hold the Chinese script is safe for the future. It's been saved by the digital technology. There's no reason to abandon it. Abandon it. It's still pretty cool to use. I, mean, I think it's just fine. In the future, uh, you're talking about this character amnesia problem where people are forgetting how to write the characters. That's increasingly not important because people, 
the, the reason people are forgetting how to write characters because, is because no one needs to write them anymore. The, the result is that people are, are, you know, nowadays I just talk into my WeChat. I don't, I don't, there's no need to write them. And there's, no even, there's not even any need for pinion entry or anything. I just simply say it and it comes, you know, speech, uh, speech to text technology is getting very good. So in the future, I think we're just going to be talking into our devices. No one's going to be writing by hand in English or Chinese. The trick is that Chinese people and foreigners will still have to recognize Chinese characters. My mantra, writing by hand is no longer a basic skill. Learning maybe 100 or 200 characters, the principles of writing is useful because it will help you to recognize what those components are. But in the future, I think, hopefully, Chinese classes will be, uh, you know, introductory writing where you sort of learn how to write 100 or so basic characters. And then from then on, it's all recognition. And the example I give is, you know, if I hold you up the New York Times logo that's written in this impossibly beautiful, complicated, gothic script, we, we recognize that interest, instantly as the New York Times but, but take the, the logo away and write, it, write that out by hand, write those, those characters out by hand. You can't do it. You don't need to do it. We, all you need to do is recognize it, right? So the, so the future of Chinese characters is they're going to be used you know, efficiently in cyberspace alongside all the other scripts, but that no one will have to write it. We'll just have to be able to recognize it, which is a much, much easier task. If, if people like Brendan want to delve into the classical language and stick with you know, this, this persnickety thing of learning the characters, all power to them. That's wonderful. You can still do that. But I think the future is going to be a good one because, especially for the Chinese language, it's going to be based more on, centered on more on the aspect that it should be centered on, which is speech, which is people talking to each other. You know, you know, a text message is still just speech, right? It's still based upon the spoken language. Finally, in the 21st century, Chinese, the Chinese language as the written language can meld into the spoken language in a very natural way, the way that all other Euro Indo-European languages have. And in the future, I think it's going to be much easier to learn Chinese for we foreigners and for the Chinese people themselves. And so that's a, you know, that's a very bright future. So I, I noticed that we're still, and I was doing it too, talking about the spoken language. Um, you know, one of the things that I think most people don't realize about Mandarin, native speakers and, and foreign learners alike, is as written in, in characters today, is it is full of a bunch of really messy hacks, right? I mean, even the prestige form of speech, Mandarin, um, you know, if you... Well, I just want to insert something here. We just, just to be precise, we sloppily use Mandarin to sort of mean standard Chinese. And what's standard Chinese in the PRC is Putonghua. Mm -hmm. Standard Chinese in Taiwan is Guoyu. Standard Chinese. So they're different standards. But it's okay to use Mandarin as long as you know we're talking about this vague sort of northern Beijing, Beifang Guanghua. Yeah, as long, okay, so having said that, go ahead. Okay, so yes, Beifang Guanghua. I mean, Taiwan doesn't count because eventually they'll get liberated and, you know, <laughs> then, then they'll start speaking proper Mandarin. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're writing Mandarin, that is, you're writing the, the form of, of spoken Chinese that is supposedly most amenable to characters. You know, you introduce possession or you introduce a subordinate clause by writing the character for target. That makes no sense, but nobody ever notices it. Um, if you want to say that there aren't any things or that something didn't happen, you do it with a character that means to sink. Makes no sense. Nobody notices it. And, you know, with Mandarin, there's already this long tradition of clumsy character hacks in order to make it a writable language. With Cantonese, we've seen that in, you know, kind of trashy newspapers like the Apple Daily, 
there are characters that have been invented for purposes of writing Cantonese vocabulary and grammatical particles. The same thing hasn't really happened so much with other Chinese languages. With Shanghainese, there are various kind of ad hoc solutions. Hokkien, for the longest time, was written in, in church romanization, and now people are in Taiwan, I believe, writing it mostly with Julian. I would like to think that what we're going to see is more and more solutions for writing non-Mandarin languages, for writing other Chinese languages, whether that's in phonetic scripts, whether that's in ad hoc character-based systems. These are languages that are, deserve to be written just as much as Mandarin does. And I'm hoping that we'll see more of that. In terms of the future, yeah, I think we're heading for a generally post-literate future everywhere in the world, right? Um, in, in English, you see people freaking out about spelling and sort of online shorthand and, you know, BCUZ for because and so on. And in English, it's the same thing. What we have suddenly is a written form for informal communication. This has never happened any time before in, in human history, and people have, are figuring it out in Chinese just as they are in English and in other languages. So still kind of undergoing that process. If you're giving advice to someone who's first starting out on the trail of learning Chinese, what's the, what's the first advice you'd give somebody? Characters, no characters, where do we start? Well, it's a messy answer, but it really depends on what you want to do with Chinese. And obviously, if you're enrolled in one of the programs that we teach, uh, then you're stuck in a certain kind of mode, which is learning academic Chinese from teachers, right? But I, I think the main thing, even then, even if you even if you choose that route, you you have to. I think Chinese forces you to very be very clear of what you want to do with a language. Do I just want to do business with it? Do I just want to pick up members of the opposite sect? Do I want to, you know, do I want to go into literature? What do I want to do with it? That will determine your next step and how you go about learning it. And for a lot of foreigners, I think, you know, if, if they just want to learn good speaking, then I would say, yeah, maybe you could just forego the characters completely for the first year or so. Get it, get some good pinion materials and get some good informants and just learn the spoken language. There's no reason why you have to go through the characters, although eventually you're going to bump up against that problem, you know. Um, if, on the other hand, you, you really see serious and you want to and you want to be doing something in academia you want to do what Brendan's doing I would say yeah you better start learning characters right now but if you're going to do that digitize everything to what to to the the extent possible. If you can find any digital version, an e-copy e of anything, put it on those smartphones, put it on your iPad, use it in the app, and do not be, attempt to do what I had to do in the bad old days, which is to learn Chinese by reading paper books and looking up characters in a dictionary. That day is over. There's no reason to do it anymore. No matter what your teacher tells you, digitize and, and, and jump over that wall so that you're reading through lots of text and not worried about like looking up words and remembering each character. It doesn't matter, right? You just want to get information. So that's my advice is be very clear about what you want to do. And if you do, if characters is part of your agenda. Yeah, I, I pretty much agree. I mean, I, I would say even that regardless of what you're trying to do, I mean, as far as I know, there are not any programs these days designed to teach you classical Chinese without reference to Mandarin. So assuming that you are going to be learning Mandarin, no matter what you're going on to do. Yeah, screw characters, not for the first year. Um, work on pronunciation, work on tone sandi, work on rhythm. If you listen to a lot of foreigners who have Chinese, even at a fairly high level, people sound really unnatural. And it's because characters do, in fact, get you into this bad habit of thinking 
in terms of syllables. You know, I, and the other thing also is that everybody learns the tones wrong the first time unless they're really freakishly talented. I had to go back three or four years into my study of Chinese and just retrain myself because, well, because I was lazy and because uh, characters distracted me from what, as you say, is, is the real business of language, which is speech. You know, for when you do get past that first year, for when you finally got a good grounding and grammar and pronunciation and so on, yeah, good digital, absolutely. Um, when Lin you know, made it possible for me to read Chinese. Plico these days, I love Wenlin, but Plico is pantsing it. That said, I don't know, maybe it's coming from the sort of post-Irish Catholic background where I think that people should suffer, but I will say that when I'm working, I will go digital because I'm, I'm not interested in learning. I'm interested in getting stuff done. Well, I, I certainly don't have the linguistic chops of, of my co-host or, or David. I would say that I, I would tend to agree because I think one of the biggest mistakes I made when I was first studying, and I came out, I came at this from the background of I wanted to learn about history, so I was always focused on characters. And you know, it's, it's a joke, but it really has held me back all these years that I read a lot of historical documents and historical figures. They don't care what my tones sound like, and and in truth, I I, I totally sympathize with, or understand or with what Brendan was was saying because I I did think and still do in many ways think in terms of characters and and not necessarily in terms of the rhythm of actual speech. If I had come at it with a different approach, which is maybe focusing on that speech, things would have been a lot better. And I agree with what David said too in terms of language learning and language acquisition. I know that I. I have generations of students, and I assume David does too, that's hearing us say this, that, you know, those dictations where we made you write everything out by hand wasn't the way to go. And, and I think I'm going to get angry, angry letters about that. But, you know, that's, that's how language acquisition, learning, teaching, these things progress. Uh, or don't progress. Um, you know, because the way Chinese is taught, I mean, you say that finally, finally, people are starting to move on this, but God, it's only been, what, 170 years? Really, the tingxia, the brute force, rote method of teaching Chinese really is, is just common. If you look at 19th century Chinese textbooks to, you know, even integrated Chinese in the new PCR today, it's conceptually not that different. Really want to thank David for coming in today. Please check out our new book, A Billion Voices, China's Search for a Common Language. I just finished this book over the weekend, and if you are a student of Chinese or a student of China and really want to have an in-depth look at how the history of the language and the recent history of the country are so intertwined, you're full of information, and I really want to thank David for publishing uh, a really much-needed corrective to some of the misunderstandings we have. So thank you for coming in today, David. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. And Brendan, it was great to have you in the co-host chair while you're here in Beijing. Wish you the best of luck in the upcoming academic year when you go back to the wonderfully clear skies, fresh air, and cheese steaks of West Philly. Well, thanks for having me. And um, yeah, just a, another plug for David's book. For years, I've been saying that the John DeFrancis book, The Chinese Language Fact and Fantasy, saved me a lot of time when I was starting out in Chinese. I think David's book has the, the potential to do the same thing. Well, that's high praise indeed. Well, join us in two weeks when James Palmer is back from Marriage and Honeymoon. We'll be continuing our series on Northern Barbarians with a deep dive into the role that the Khitan played in the history of China and the history of Beijing. Till next time, this is Jeremiah Jenny, Barbarians at the Gate. Thank you, everybody.